1: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join
0: the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.
1: Price and coverage match limited by state law.
2: Joey, they say that you're
0: one of the best conversations down there at first base. Who are some of your favorite conversations down there? Ah, there's too many. Let me tell you something. Whenever Wilson's here, he is so grumpy. He, he is so grumpy. He won't talk to me. And so uh I usually have to tell him how good of a swing it was, how much I like his game, how happy I am for him and his brother. Congratulations. <laughs> i <laughs> in the middle of a major league game, and I'm, I've got nothing to do right now, so I might as well tell a story. <laughs> Go for it. You know what I remember? You know, I faced Randy Johnson, I faced Maddox, I faced Mariano, you, Schilling, Eusena, mm-hmm. and Glavin. And I remember every single one of you guys had exceptional command, fantastic command. And I didn't expect that. You know, I thought of you guys as power guys, power arms, power sliders. The command that all of you had shocked me. Me. I was talking to Griffey Sr. before the game and I said, How long did you play till? And he said, 41. I thought I could have played till I was 43. And I said, You have any advice? He said, have fun. And I'm having a great time. I want to keep playing. Thanks for the time, guys. I gotta go hit maybe a homer. Welcome back to the
2: MLB.com Ballpark Conventions Podcast. My name is Mike Petrillo. I'm a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Friday. August 12th, we are going to talk about Aaron Judge's pursuit of home run history and the red hot nearly historic heater he's on that you may not have even noticed. We're going to talk about how the Dodgers are having, I feel like we say this every year, the quietest great season in history and like half of their pitching staff is on their way back. We have to talk about Dylan Cease, who on a disappointing White Sox team has been amazingly good. And we're going to get into Adley Rutschman and the Orioles, because we have to, and whether Adley Rutschman still has a shot at the American League Rookie of the Year, before Matt and I each get into a guy you should know a little bit more about. Matt, first, last night was the Field of Dreams game in Iowa, the Cubs and the Reds. Uh, It was super fun, I think, especially for me, because last year I was on vacation, my brother was getting married, so I kind of missed most of last year's game, which I know was like a really great experience, so I was excited to see it this time. And... I found the whole thing fascinating because I was watching with my six-year-old son and he had no idea about the movie like whatsoever, but he just liked the idea that they were playing in a cornfield and there were only like, I don't know, a couple of thousand seats. And I think that was my favorite takeaway from it too, like kind of long-term, which is that I don't actually care about the movie. I don't even like the movie, but there are so many baseball games in a season to have like a couple in somewhere weird. I love that. I want more of that.
1: It's funny you mentioned that because- I had a similar experience. My, my daughters who were seven and five, they saw me watching it. And they, I mean, they see me watching baseball all the time, but they were kind of riveted and they had a million questions about like, wait, what is this field? What's going on here? And then my seven-year-old started asking me about Field of Dreams. I started trying to explain to her the movie, <laughs> and it's really challenging to try and explain the movie to a seven-year-old, and then I tried to explain the 1919 19 Black Sox and the concept of throwing games, and we really went down the rabbit hole oh, there. Oh, you went into it? <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> she was like, I want to... All, all I said was, well, it's a movie about a
2: man who had a farm, and he cut a baseball field into it, and then like ghosts showed up and started playing <laughs> baseball. <laughs>
1: And then one thing I was like, well, imagine, I was like, imagine, you know, we make a bet on this game and I bet the Cubs and you bet the Reds, but I know the Reds are going to lose. <laughs> How does that make you feel? <laughs> you got deep, like I yes. Um She says she wants to watch the movie. So I was like, maybe I need a little background here. We'll see. Although when the movie came out when I was in third grade, she's going in third grade. Um, I guess it seems like maybe she could watch it. I mean, I, I'm with you watching the game now as an adult, I'm not sure I really it, uh, how I feel about it. It's like so hard to separate it from like my first experience. First time I watched it, I remember seeing my dad cry, and I think it was the first time I ever saw my dad cry, I remember it was in a movie theater. It was that movie theater for those from New York City on West 4th Street right across from the West 4th Street basketball courts. Um, oh
2: yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um it's not
1: like an independent like, you know, art house place back then. It used to show like first-run movies. And I remember that it's like one of those like vivid memories you have as a kid. So it's like hard to separate um, all that stuff from uh, from like whatever you think of the movie itself. That said, the Field Dreams game was cool. You know, obviously the matchup wasn't as good as it was last year when we had Yankees and the White Sox, both in the midst of, of pennant races, Cubs, Reds. Eh, not as exciting. Highlight for me, Joey Votto, mic'd up. He did an inning. He's like so charming and affable. I mean, it was... It was, so, it was so interesting. I'm like, he's told great stories. He talked about his father. He told great stories about just like um, different players in the game and who he likes to chat with at first base. Um, my favorite story was him talk, talking to John Smoltz about when he faced him and John Smoltz like lost his mind because he was pissed at how the Reds didn't rub up the balls properly. And John Smoltz was like, yeah, you got me. <laughs> he was like, yeah, you got me. And then, but like also like the, the insight you get from players when they're mic'd up just hearing them is like, it's so different than anything you get from them in different times. Like he's talking about how, you know, he said he makes the point to Smoltz. He was like, yeah, Smoltz. When I faced you, he was in your career. You were, you weren't throwing as hard, but you still had incredible command. And he's like, the one thing I remember, he was like, off the top of his head. He was like, I faced a bunch of hall of famers. He was like, I faced Rivera, Glavin, Messina, he like Schilling. He was like, he ran him off. He said, Every single one of them, I faced them at the end of their career, their stuff wasn't as great, but all of them had just, like, impeccable command. You just, like, couldn't put your finger on, like, the command that these guys had. It was interesting to hear him say that. At one point, he was, like, shifted, and he was just, like, talking to the guys. He was like, wait, I got to move over. This guy might hit it here. And literally, the next pitch, I think it was Nico Horner, he fouled it off, like, right to first base. It was, like, the instincts that these guys have is like it's just incredible the more we see players miked up in game the more it's like i hope this keeps getting normalized because it's awesome i want to get to a point where we have it like once a game because it's just like it's a cool thing and the, you see a side of the players you don't always see
2: i was just about to say it seems like the tide has turned on that a little bit like a couple years ago i would be like oh i'm no i would never do that and now the more they do it and the more interesting it gets i think what i've decided is i want to see a player miked up every night and i don't ever need to see an in-game manager interview pretty much ever because it's the same two questions like well we're giving our best out there yay threw the ball hard like it it never worked out all right Aaron Judge uh is he gonna set all-time home run records I feel like we we are going to talk about this more, I think, uh, as the weeks go on, because the last couple of weeks was like, OK, it's the All-Star game. It's the trade deadline. It's the Field of Dreams game. And now we're kind of far enough into the season. The Yankees only have 50 games left where you can start looking at this and saying um, it's not too far away to talk about this. Aaron Judge has 45 home runs in 112 team games. So you go back through history. And you look at the guys who had the most home runs through 112 team games. Number one, Barry Bonds had 47 in 2001. Number two, Babe Ruth had 46 in 1921. Number three, Aaron Judge. Tied with Mark McGuire in 1998. Now, I understand a lot of people will say, well, I do not respect Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa's home run records. You could have your own opinions on that. They are in the books, so we still have to look at them. Um, But he's not going to hit another 28 home runs to get to Barry Bonds' (laughs) 73 anyway. So I think what we're looking at here is really a chase to the American League record and the Yankee record of Roger Maris hitting 61 in 1961. So he needs 16 home runs in 50 games. Uh, He has 14 home runs in his last 21 games. (laughs) So I don't want to say that sounds easy. It's not true. Um, But certainly, I I think if you look at the pace he's on, he's on pace for 65. You can't look at pace because it wasn't that long ago. The Yankees were on pace to win 120 games and look what's happened there. (laughs) But if you look at this, he's he's. Kind of on a really recently historic hot stretch. So what I did was I looked at his last 21 games, and his OPS in his last 21 games is 1614, 1614. I've never really known how to say four-digit OPSs, but it's one of those. Uh, since Bonds retired in 2007, only two players have had better stretches. One of them was Bryce Harper in the middle of his MVP 2015, which tracks because he was fantastic. And the second one, and as soon as I saw this, I was like, oh, Yeah. That's that makes sense. Uh Jose Bautista, Joey Bats, in the middle of his twenty eleven, I can't remember if it was his breakout season or his second grade season, but when he was awesome. And then it's Aaron Judge. And so I'm looking at this and I'm like, I don't wanna say like he's definitely gonna break Roger Maris's record or likely to, but the more I think about this, uh the more I think the final week of the season, this is all we're gonna be talking about.
1: Totally. I think it's and I think it's great. I think it's so exciting. I mean for me actually because of the way sort of like the home run records have sort of been tarnished, I don't want to say tainted, tarnished a little bit, or just like to me, 60 is most interesting to me, frankly, just because like that's a number that has been reached in a long time. I know it's just like a nice round number, but like even 61 had its own baggage to it. Um, it's also, for what it's worth, that is the American League record. So so Judge is also going after the Yankees record, which is 61. It's also the American League record. All those other seasons, um, the Bonds, Sosa, uh, Maguire seasons, those are all in the National League. So this would be the American League record if we're, if we're interested in such things. So like the thing I'm most focused on is sort of seeing like, if he can get to 60 and I think that's where this conversation is going. It's going to be 60 or 61. I don't think he can get to 70, but like, you know, okay. No, like It's still impressive what he's doing. In fact, I could argue that what he's doing is, I don't want to say more impressive, but like when you look at all the biggest home run seasons in baseball history, and I'm going to, I'm going to put Babe Ruth aside for a second. Pre-integration. We all know like the level of competition was diluted for various reasons that we don't need to get into it. it. It's a different time, different sport, basically. The other great seasons, they were all, and you could, and I'm also putting PDs aside for a second, because the other important thing that I think always gets overlooked in these conversations about um, Maguire, Sosa, Bonds, is part of the reason they were able to do this expansion. The talent pool, the pitching talent pool was diluted. 1998 was an expansion year, Right. Nineteen sixty-one, when Roger Maris set the AL home run record, was an American League expansion year. This is not a coincidence to me, right? Also, not to mention the fact that in the '90s, baseball had two expansions. You could argue that, like, there was an expansion in '93 and again in '98, which is kind of crazy in retrospect when you think about it. And so, um, I think that's a big reason why those cluster of home run seasons happen. You know, PDs, you can put a, you know, whatever you want to say about it. The expansion is a huge factor as well. All these things happen. All those big seasons for Maguire, Sosa, Bonds were 98, 99, 2001. It's all around expansion, right? So there was clearly a dilated, diluted pitching pool at that time. So in a certain sense, what judges doing now, we talk all the time about how much better pitching is. There hasn't been expansion in, you know, whatever, 25 years Pitching is better than ever. He's facing relievers way more, rarely getting to pitch face starting pitchers a third or sometimes even fourth time. Like, it's in, it's kind of incredible what he's doing. Uh,
2: yes, it is really incredible. And I, I was thinking about that kind of context today because if you remember the first, like, six weeks of the season, all anybody talked about was, oh, home runs are down, power is down, right? And that that's true. Like, we talked about it. You know, the ball, the humidor, all of this. But I think... It's important to think about like down from what, you know, it's like it's down from 2019 when we had like the all time homeriest season. But I looked this up this morning. We are at one point oh eight home runs per team game. When you go back to 1998, which I think people think of as a very high offense era, uh, one point oh four home runs per game so it's like it's all about the context like we have a similar problem here I think in New York City right now where people people are like oh my god crime is up and it's like it's up compared to like the safest year we ever had but it's like nowhere near 1978 or whatever you know so it's all about like what are you trying to compare things to and then if you look at the way the Yankees season is going so they got off to like this amazingly good start you know through June 18th they were 49 and 16. And then we're all talking about, oh, are they going to set the all-time wins record? Are they going to win 125 games? Well, they're 22 and 24 since. And obviously, I think that's a slump. I think that they'll be fine. They won't play as well as they did because the bullpen's not the same. But I was trying to think about this. If they were like sailing away with the number one seed, Judge probably gets a lot of time off. Before the end of the season, and now if they're trying to you know hold off the Astros if they want home field in a potential matchup, I sort of wonder if they have to play Judge more than they plan to. That sort of helps them get to the home run record. And if you look at the end of the Yankee season, uh, they play Baltimore at home, and then in October they go to Texas. And they have a doubleheader on Tuesday, October 4th. And can you imagine a scenario where he's actually playing 18 innings on October 4th in Texas? I get he'll probably DH one of those games, but whatever. But I know if I lived in Dallas or Arlington, I would be buying up tickets for that Yankee series right now, immediately.
1: That's a really funny point. And At least the thing is, like, because of the um, the, the way the playoff schedule set up, I think he'll play because the Yankees will almost certainly have one of the top two seeds, and... uh They'll get. They'll still get like four days off or five days off before the their their playoff round will start. So I think that he will he will play all these games. I think he's going to go for the record. I hope he goes for the record. Um, It's one of the more exciting things to watch. You had a you had a piece. You had something. You you did a breakdown of Judge last week and you pointed out that he had one ball he hit in Baltimore this year which I thought was really funny. As as you listeners might know, as you listeners probably know, the Orioles moved their fence back this year and it's been a big thing because, you know, Trey Mancini lost a bunch of homers and it's changed the way Camden Yards plays. Aaron Judge hit one to left field this year that like bounced off the top of the wall that last year would have been an easy home run in Camden Yards and that like basically like that could be the difference between him setting the record and not.
2: <laughs> I've, I forgot about that. The video is very funny because you're right. It's not like it would have just been a home run last year. It would have been a home run by like 12 rows last year. It hit the very, very top of the wall. All right, prediction time. I think he's going to get to 59 heading into that Texas series. And he's not going to homer the first day. And he's going to hit 60 during that doubleheader. And the final game of the season, Wednesday, October 5th in Texas, Everyone's gonna be talking about, you know, Dane Dunning or John Gray or whomever is starting that day, if they're even gonna throw him strikes. And I think that's gonna be exciting. Where are you?
1: I think he's gonna to get to I mean I think he's I think he's gonna hit 62. That's my prediction. I don't know how he's gonna get there. I think he's gonna hit 62 on the nose. All
2: right, I hope he does. We're gonna take a quick break and we'll be back on the MLB.com ballpark dimension podcast, and we're gonna talk about the Dodgers.
0: This episode is supported by FX's Clipped.
2: We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. We move into our three batter minimum. The first thing we're going to do is point out, I don't know if anybody's noticed this, maybe it's just me. Did you know that the Dodgers are a very good baseball team? They've won 10 in a row. They have won 32 Of their last 37, that's right, they are 32 and five in their last 37 games. The only teams in the last century to go better than 32 and five and 37 would be 2017's Cleveland team and 1977's Kansas City team, who both went 33 and four. Now, when I tweeted that, half of Michigan tried to point out to me that the 1984 Tigers did go 35 and five, which is better than 32 and five, and that's true. But the metric I used was best 37 game stretch. Not best 40 game stretch. So save it, Tigers. It's, I'm sorry. Um, after they won, they swept the Twins the other day. So after their win on August 10th, the Dodgers are on a 118 and 44 stretch over 162 games. This was tweeted out by Blake Harris, who writes for True Uh It's the greatest 162 game stretch by any team in the expansion era. And they are somehow underperforming their Pythagorean record, which is basically, uh, if you like a run differential, how much have you outscored your opponents, which right now is 237. They would be expected to be 79 and 31. They are only 77 and 33. Man, what a bummer. Um, (laughs) I want to talk about all their injured pitchers in a second, but i feel like we're not talking about how great this team is and has been i don't know if that's because they only have the one ring and it came in the weird shortened season i don't know if that's because we're just bored by consistency and we're more interested in the next cool thing uh but the dodger machine keeps on humming and i know everybody's like well payroll they outspend everybody and yes that's true spending money on players is a good thing but that's such an oversimplification. Like. Getting guys like Evan Phillips and making them good, and Tyler Anderson and making them good, is not about spending thirty million dollars a year on every pitcher.
1: Exactly, and I think this, this, I mean, this goes back to sort of what they were originally. It's, I mean, it's sort of like, oh, they have like a lot of like the Rays stuff, you know, plus a lot of money, and you combine those two things, and it's like, okay, this is what you get, which is an absolute juggernaut. Uh, I think I went over this on a podcast a year ago. I wish I had in front of me, maybe it was two years ago, that basically comparing their best their 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 best era, and this didn't even include this year, to like the late 90s Yankees in terms of like overall record and run differential, they like dwarf them. So I think it's to your point, I think it's, you know, we as a society are still just sort of like way more interested in like the rings. And it's almost just their dominance is just so, you know, ho-hum. Right now, that it's like we're just—it's just, we've just come to um, expect it. One thing that I think has gotten you know totally overlooked, right? I mean, it's—I mean, they're They have the—they think they have the most runs scored and fewest runs allowed in baseball this year. And this is despite the fact that, like as you said, they've like missed a bunch of pitchers. They've been missing. Muncie's been terrible. They've had other injuries. It's just like they just keep going along. And this kind of goes, I think, speaks to some of the things where like players who sign free agent contracts, maybe they lose some of that. Like Freddie Freeman right now has the highest th- putting, I mean, he won the MVP in 2020, but it was a 60 game season. He had a 186 weighted run training plus that year, right? Right now he's at 157, which would be the highest full season mark in his career. He's having the, arguably the best season. Freddie Freeman is having arguably the best season of his career and no one is talking about it. It is like, it is getting absolutely no attention. <laughs> The dude is absolutely raking. He's saying 325, 400, 523. It's incredible. He already has more higher war per fan grasp this year than he had all of last season when he played 159 games. And it's just like, no one's talking about the guy. It's just like, this it it's anyway, there's you could there's so many things you could talk talk about the Dodgers. They're just really good.
2: I think my favorite stat I looked this up the other day, so I don't have the updated numbers in front of me right this second was if you split their lineup into thirds, right? Like the one, two, three spots in the lineup, um the top three was second best in baseball, which like that makes sense. They're very good. That's mostly Freeman Turner and uh Mookie Betts. Uh the middle is like actually kinda of soft. Like the four, five, six has not been great. Like as you said, Muncie hasn't been great, Justin Turner hasn't been great. But if you go to the bottom if you go to the seven, eight, nine spots in the order, like this is where your weakest hitter should be, so they have the best seven, eight, nine in baseball with an OPS of 765. Like fine, whatever. Uh, as of the other day, that number, that 765 from their bottom three, was better than was better than the one, two, three of 19 other teams, which is like so absurd I could barely get it out without laughing. Their bottom three would be better than the top three for more than half the sport. Which I think is just kind of obscene, and as you know, we both kind of mentioned. You look at the pitchers who've been hurt, right? Like Dustin May, who looked like last year he was going to have like a mega breakout, and then he blew out his elbow. Well, he's pretty close to being back. He touched ninety nine in AAA the other day. He's probably going to come back. Uh, I think they have an upcoming series against the Marlins, and he'll probably be back. and He's not going to be stretched out to throw eight innings or whatever, but could he start in the playoffs? Could he be a middle reliever in the playoffs? Like, whatever. Uh, Blake Trinan, who is one of the five or so best relievers in the sport when he's healthy, hasn't pitched since April. He's going to start a rehab assignment tonight. Bruce Dargraderil, who's very good. He's been out for like a month. He's going to start a rehab assignment tonight. Kershaw's hurt. Uh, He is expected to return in mid-September, and, you know, barring any setbacks, should probably be available for the playoffs. Oh, and Walker Buehler, who like basically is their ace when he's healthy, he uh, has been out for a couple months. His return is uncertain, but he's expected to start throwing off a mound in two weeks and could be available for the playoffs. And it's like, they're missing five pretty big dudes. And then if you really look ahead to the postseason, a potential 13-man playoff roster for a best-of-five NLDS, if those guys are all healthy, which I know is like the world's biggest if and one actually happened, you're gonna have a really hard time narrowing it down. Like, I tried to make a 13-man playoff roster. Here were the guys I could not get on the roster. Uh, Caleb Ferguson, who has a ERA of zero. Yancy Almonte, who's been a pretty good reclamation project in the bullpen. Andrew Heaney, who everybody thought was going to be kind of a dude and then he got hurt. Uh, David Price, Reyes Maranta, Ryan Pepia. Those are the guys I could not get onto my roster. I think we underestimate just like what they do. The fact that they're doing this with a top three of Tony Gonsalan, Julio Arias, and Tyler Anderson, <laughs> it's just the most obscene thing. So here's a question for you, Matt. You kind of alluded to it with the relative lack of rings. When are we using the D word? And I mean dynasty. Were the were the '90s Braves a dynasty because they won a billion divisions in a row, but only one ring? And is that what the Dodgers are going to be?
1: I think they're a dynasty, but I think it's that's. I think most people don't see it that, that way. I think they see dynasty as, as rings. So um, yeah, and it's it's. I mean, it's only it's it's probably even harder for them. You know, I guess. Well, this I'm very interested to see how this year's playoffs um, play out because in theory, the teams with the buys the division series should be easier for them, right? For example, if, like, you know, the Dodgers, you know, have a bye and they get to face the Phillies, for example. I'm just saying the Phillies are well-equipped in a short series with Nolan Wheeler to beat anyone, but presumably they're going to have to pitch Nolan Wheeler if they can, if they can line up their starters in the the wild-card round, in which case they wouldn't be able to pitch until games, you know, three or four or four and five of the division series. So that should... Like if you're if you're the the Dodgers and you get to start a series against the, the Phillies like number three four four five yeah. starters you should win that Gibson series Gibson and Suarez <laughs> yeah so like but like I we'll see but um, yeah I think they're a dynasty but it's I, it's not my decision not my decision to make what they're doing is amazing as you said they they sort of find these the the, the depth of their forty man roster is unlike anything. We've ever, I think that's that's the the strength of the team is the depth of their forty man roster and beyond is beyond anything we've ever seen before. They they keep turning it over year in and year out. It's really impressive. they I think they're on pace for one hundred and thirteen wins now. They've already set their franchise record with one hundred six wins twice in the last five years. Was one hundred six in two thousand nineteen and twenty twenty one I think. Um, uh, something like
2: that. I I do think something that people don't really think through enough and it's really important is how much harder it is just to get to the World Series now in the postseason. I'm gonna leave you with this, Babe Ruth. And Mickey Mantle and Joe DiMaggio combined, the three of them, I don't even know how many World Series rings they had, but it's got to be like a dozen, right? They combined played zero playoff games that were not World Series games. (laughs) Think about that. You finish first in the regular season, you play in the World Series the next day. Uh, A little more complicated now. All right, here's the second thing. Dylan Cease, if you haven't been following the White Sox, uh, the White Sox have been a tremendous disappointment this year and continue to be. Dylan Cease has put together a run pretty much unlike anything we've ever seen. His last 14 starts, he has allowed 0 or 1 earned run over every single one of those starts. In those 14 starts, he's allowed 6 earned runs. Now, 16 total runs, because the White Sox defense is very bad. Also, I'd like to point out that... uh, He's maybe the most dominating pitcher in baseball right now. Matt, did you notice Vinny Pasquantino tagged him for a home run yesterday? I just wanted to point out that Vinny Pasquantino, favorite of this show, hit Dylan Cease for a home run, a man who has not allowed more than one run in a game in like three months. But Vinny Pasquantino did it. Anyway, if you go back and you look at a 14-start streak of ERA, ERA became official, earned runs became official in 1913. Uh, the lowest ERA over 14 starts within the span of one season. I did not go across multiple seasons. Uh, Bob Gibson in 1968, maybe the most dominating year in baseball history. Walter Johnson in 1918. And then Dylan Cease's .66 this year. It's not hyperbole to say, oh my God, this guy is doing something borderline unprecedented the story of how he got to this point is interesting and i'll get to it in a second uh but i i sort of wonder matt when are we going to revisit the jose quintana trade <laughs> that brought dylan Cease and eli jimenez and i think two other guys who didn't pan out to the south side because that is quintana wasn't that good for the cubs this is sort of looking like one of the all-time
1: greatest heists in baseball history <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth. In fact, I was just about to say, <laughs> when are we going to start talking about the Eloy Jimenez for the Katana trade and rename it the Dylan Cease? Yeah. Because <laughs> Eloy Jimenez right. was the headliner in that trade. And he's actually been pretty good when he's been healthy. He's actually hit pretty well this year, although he missed, time, missed a bunch of time again. But I mean, Cease has been incredible. It's, it's almost amazing the White Sox have been so... If you had told me before the season... Dylan Cease was going to have the season, I'd be like, oh, the White Sox are going to run away with the uh, the AL Central this year. The White Sox are basically the opposite of the Dodgers, where it's like the the 40-man roster just is like not there. The depth of it, it just it stops at like 10 guys <laughs> and falls off precipitously um, because, um, you know, Cease has been incredible. And, you know, you said he's sort of, you know, he's reinvented himself. It's, it's, he's... He's amazing, and he, he could win the Young award. He could. Well, we'll talk about that in a second.
2: I want. To, this is his fourth year in the majors, right? Look at this ERA trend. His first year, 579. Next year, 401. The next year, 391. This year, 196. Now, again, earned runs. He's allowed more runs. The White Sox defense has not helped him. But he's done it in a really interesting way, and I'm, I'm trying and struggling to come up with another example of a guy who's done this. What he, he basically did... Was he's had this high spin forcing seam fastball that had very bad shape. It was it was straight. Like this is the kind of thing that Corbin Burns had when he got lit up a couple of years ago with the 8.82 ERA, and he didn't improve that pitch. He basically just dumped it. He said, "Well, forget it. Uh, that's not good. I'm going to throw my cutter and my sinker." Dylan Cease did not dump his fastball. He changed the shape. So his first year, he was uh, you know an, an inch and a half uh, less rise than average. So he's getting more sink on his supposedly rising 4 seam fastball, which is very bad. And then in 2020, it bumped up to average. And then last year, it was two inches above average. And now this year, it's three inches above average. Like, that is an incredible change. He's basically gone five inches of rise on his fastball, which like it does not happen. And then you look at his other pitches, his curveball, top three curveball drop in the majors behind Rowan Wick and our friend Seth Lugo. And also his best pitch is actually his slider. If you were to go look at the run values on Baseball Savant, you know how many runs has this pitch saved, Right. And the top 10 are full of pitches, you'd guess, right? Like Shohei Otani's slider, Burns' cutter, uh, Rodon's four-seamer, Edwin Diaz's slider. Those are all in like the 15 to 20 runs saved based on that pitch. Uh, Dylan Cease is at 30 on just his slider. And the fact that he's been able to do this, as you said, like you would think, oh man, Cease, Giolito, Michael Kopech. Lance Lynn, this is going to be baseball's best rotation. Do you know who their second best starter has actually been this year? Without looking. Can you guess?
1: I cannot guess. Johnny Cueto.
2: <laughs> Literally Johnny Cueto. It's amazing. Not if you're a White Sox fan. It's actually quite bad. Uh, but it's really, it's just wild to see what's happened. And I, I do think he's going to get into the Cy Young uh, conversation now. So MLB.com, we, we do every couple of weeks a ballot for this. And before his start yesterday, um, we ran an article on it. Justin Verlander was far and away in first place. He got 27 first place votes. Cease was second, five first place votes. Shane McClanahan got a couple. Uh, Alec Manoa was fourth. Kevin Gosman uh, was fifth. Uh, Shohei Otani and Nestor Cortez also got first place votes. I don't know who voted for Cortez, but I would love to find out. I think... I, I, I'm trying to think about the right way to say this. What Justin Verlander is doing has been incredible and he's been dominant. And like, it's, it's just like another feather in the cap of like a clearly hall of fame career. Is he that much better than Cease right now? Or are we just like so impressed by this guy at his age coming back from
1: injury? Um, I think it's a couple of things. I I mean, I think it's right between the two of them. It's kind of a coin flip right now. I think, you know, I voted for Verlander because of the slight edge in innings, um, which is always a, the, the the separator for me. It's not a big difference. It's only eight more innings, but it's something because considering everything else is so close. You know, Cease gets more strikeouts. Verlander walks much many fewer guys. So I think that's kind of a differentiator for me in terms of fangraft's war. They're basically the same. One, the instructions for the voters, and these are, you know, something that I take, it's it's based on what we want. We ask voters to vote based on what we've seen so far and what we expect to happen the rest of the season. I just have more faith in Verlander sort of like Maintaining this just because of his track record. Um, I could be wrong, but that's sort of like my you know, that's that's another reason why I give when I when I fill out my ballot why I give Verlander the edge. It's like I think it's pretty close right now with maybe a slight favorite favorite um, edge to Verlander, and then with. Six weeks to go. Yeah, I have a little more faith in Verlander keeping this up, so I'm gonna I'm gonna vote for him. So that was my thought process. Did you vote for Cease first? I don't remember
2: to be honest. I'm I have to go back and look. I might have been the Kevin Gosman voter.
1: <laughs> yeah, hey, he's been really Gossman's, good. But he's he's this is I mean this for me this is he's twenty innings behind Verlander, and that's a big that's that's a, that's a big gap to me. So that's why that's where I feel pretty comfortable. I had Verlander Cease as my top two, and I think Gosman third.
2: Yeah, I think you're you're right about the innings. I think. I think I did go Gosman because he's got a much better strikeout rate than Verlander, a similar walk rate, and a lower home run rate. I I imagine some people got sucked into Verlander being 15 and three while Gosman is eight and eight. Like obviously, I'm not looking at that, but you're right. There's a there's a sizable innings gap. Uh, Since we're talking about the White Sox, we should note that Tim Anderson got hurt. He is out for six weeks with a ligament tear in his finger. Uh, The White Sox are three and a half games out, which, like, that shouldn't be that far away. But do you have confidence in them? I don't. Uh, Cleveland is actually in first place in that division, which is probably a separate topic we should talk about sometime. I don't know if you watched their game against Kansas City yesterday at all. I did because, again, Vinny Pasquantino hit a home run against Dylan Cease, which I wanted to make sure everybody knew about. I felt like the top of the second was just like a microcosm of their season, because Zach Granke was pitching. He actually pitched very well, like hitting his spots, but you know, he just does not miss bats anymore. That's not who he is at this stage in his career. Here's how the top of the second went. Uh, leadoff single for the White Sox. Uh, next batter hit a single. And the next batter hit a single. Three consecutive singles. But Sebi Zavala misread the play, did not score on the single, so they had three hits in a row, no runs, loaded the bases with no outs. Zach Greinke struck the next guy out, Zach Greinke struck the next guy out, and Zach Greinke got the next guy to uh, hit into a field out. They scored no runs. They would lose the game. I was kind of watching this wondering if Dylan Cease was going to get hung with an L because of this. Um, the White Sox are still in this because it's only three and a half games out, and I don't trust the Twins or the Guardians, but I don't trust the White Sox either, and I'm, I'm just sort of wondering if we can give the Orioles, the American League Central crown. Is that something we can pull
1: off? Uh we'll get to the Orioles in a second, but yeah, they would they <laughs> okay. would be leading the AL Central. <laughs> yeah. It's right. I mean the Twins the Twins just got run by the Dodgers, so I think that almost like like that that almost skewed the standings a little bit. I'm not even sure if the the Guardians still have to face the Dodgers or not and how that might affect the, <laughs> the standings the rest of the way, but that was like man, the Twins have to be glad to get get out of LA because that was that was a a, a, a butt whooping. But um yeah. but I I th- the the Guardians, man, they keep it's. I don't know what's making that division. Let's let's talk about the Orioles for a second.
2: All right, hey, have you noticed the Orioles are a very interesting story? Uh, and I really, uh, mostly want to talk about Adley Rutschman here. So anyway, the Orioles are fifty eight and fifty three. They are, as we speak now on Friday morning, uh, one half game behind the Rays for the third and final wild card spot. I think at various points over this week they owned that spot, and they keep kind of going back and forth here. It, Adley Rutschman, I think, has been a really really good story. Obviously, number one overall pick, consensus, top overall prospect. Uh, He came in and he got off to a really slow start. In his first 20 games, hit 176 with a 513 OPS. In his last 44 games, he's hitting 288, 413, 514 with a 927 OPS. He's crushing it. And if you look at what's happened, in games started by Adley Richmond behind the plate, the Orioles are playing 590 baseball in games not started by him. They were playing 440 baseball. Now, that's not entirely because of him. Obviously, he didn't even come up until mid May because he got hurt in camp. He injured his right triceps. Um, but obviously, there's more than a little of it, too. This is the guy they've been kind of building this whole rebuild, reload around. And you can see, like you've seen in Detroit, like how risky that can be because the Tigers were kind of saying the same thing about Spencer Torkelson, and that failed miserably.
0: I mean,
2: <laughs> they just fired their general manager. Torkelson's back in A. The Rutschman, one hundred percent, looks like the real deal. And if you're trying to build around someone a two-way all-star catcher who can hit and field, uh, there are there are worse ways to run a rebuild. I think
1: it's. I mean, it's. There's a very it like. There's something about like the catcher is like the, the center of a team. There's a certain sort of charm to that because it's like, you know, their catchers are historically kind of this leadership position and he kind of comes in as a rookie and is kind of running the show and has been, as you said, kind of incredible. One thing I noticed that I thought was really interesting. If you look at um, baseball savants framing metrics, um, think Rutschman ranks 14th of the 59 players on the leaderboard, which is pretty impressive considering he didn't start the season. He's in it's accounting stats, so he's already 14th. He's plus three. Um, and Robertson Chirinos, his backup, is the worst of the 59 catchers at minus 11. So when you think of, like, maybe subtle reasons why the Orioles as a team and their pitchers are performing a little bit better, like, this is actually something, like, we can actually now um, – tangibly count and say like hey this is actually a thing he's good at this his backup is not and that could be a big reason why their pitchers are suddenly pitching a lot better and the team is playing a lot better
2: absolutely and i think we're gonna have a really interesting rookie of the year conversation at the end of the season because if you'd asked me like two weeks ago you know give me the top three for the american league rookie of the year i would have said well obviously julio Rodriguez, like clear front runner i would have said jeremy pena who got off to such a good start for houston and i think i would have said bobby witt jr you know it was got 15 home runs and he's playing good defense for Kansas City. And when I looked up the uh, wins above replacement leaderboards this morning, and I should say this is not a ballot just ranking the wars, but you know, it's a good place to start. You look at the American League. uh, Rodriguez is first. Rutschman is second in rookies. Pena is third. Stephen Kwan fourth. Witt and then Jose Miranda. That's kind of the the big six, I think. And yeah, that's all hitters. The pitcher's crop is It's decent, but it's not great. Like, is Joe Ryan going to bust through uh, John Duran, Felix Bautista, George Kirby, Andres Munoz? Like, they're all going to get some support, but none of those guys are going to top Julio Rodriguez or Adley Rutschman. And as I was probably um, pro-Jeremy Pena on this earlier in the year because he got off to such a good start, and then he got hurt. And look what's happened. Before he got hurt, he had an 805 OPS, and since he's come back, it's like six weeks of a 566 OPS. So I still think, can I imagine you agree, Matt, that Rodriguez is the front runner, but he hurt his wrist, and if that hinders him, and if the Orioles make a miracle run to the playoffs, and if Rutschman keeps hitting like this, I I think he's got
1: a shot here. I think he's got an outside shot. Yes, I think it's the 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 the, the both in terms of performance and narrative, um, the lead that Rodriguez. Be built is going to be really hard for Rutschman for to overcome. He's also just played, you know, he's played a lot more. Right now he's got, you know, 401 plate appearances to 257 for Rutschman. So, like, that's a big gap. Granted, in terms of Fangraph's war, they're almost equal, and I could see Rutschman catching him. Um, not that that should be the be-all, end-all, but it's, it is noticeable that, like, you know, Rutschman's performance, you could argue on a rate basis, has been more valuable. There's two things about Adley Rutschman that stand out to me I want to talk about, one of which is when you look at him both in general and compared to his rookie contemporaries, his strikeout and walk numbers are incredible. He's got a 14% walk rate and a 17% K rate, almost a one-to-one, which is just an incredible command of the strike zone for a rookie, especially when you compare Julio Rodriguez has 7% walk rate, 27% strikeout rate, right? Um, Jeremy Pena's 5% and 24%. Like, Rutschman is, it's pretty remarkable. And, you know, you see his like 360-whatever OBP you can see okay this guy this is this is this is very real right one thing that also stands out to me is Rutschman, as we know is a switch hitter and in the minors he's I remember him struggling as a switch hitter and it's kind of going unnoticed because his overall line is so good and as a as a left-handed hitter he's absolutely raking he's got a 905 OPS as a uh left-handed hitter so it's like okay this guy can rake as a right-handed hitter he's been pretty bad he's hitting 148 284 213 um which is 213 (laughs) it's like he does not have a home run from the right side of the plate this year it's sort of shocking to be honest with you how bad he's been but the overall line you know he doesn't face as many left-handed pitchers he can kind of hide it a little bit it does make me wonder if one day we've seen it with the orioles already cedric mullins gave up switch hitting and his career kind of took off if at some point Uh, the same thing will happen with Adley Rutschman, but that is a conversation for maybe another day. Overall, we're quibbling here. He's obviously been fantastic. And the, the main reason I think the Orioles have taken off.
2: Yeah, I wanted to pass along an interesting fact that I I was wrong about until like an hour ago Uh, in the new collective bargaining agreement. I I thought it was the winner of the rookie of the year would get a full year of service time if they weren't on the opening day roster. And I was mistaken about that. It's actually first or second. And I thought, well, he's probably not going to win, but is he going to finish second? Uh, Yeah. So I think he might be the first beneficiary of this new rule, because if he finishes second, he's going to get that full year of service time, despite not coming up until May 21st uh the other thing the other thing I wanted to point out to you about the Orioles well two things um the trades of Trey Mancini and Jorge Lopez were pretty unpopular They have won seven of nine games in August. I'm not sure if you should look at that as saying, oh, wow, they're real. Wouldn't they be better with those guys? Or, well, they traded those guys, and clearly the clubhouse hasn't fallen apart. They're still winning lots of baseball games. Choose your narrative. Um, But I wanted to point out the, the schedule that the Orioles have to end the season. So they have the toughest schedule in the American League. Here are their last four series of the season. This is obscene, but they might also... make some noise in the playoff picture even if it's not specifically for them so uh, starting September 22nd right they've got Houston at home for four they go to Boston for four they go to the Yankees for three and then they end with the Blue Jays at home for three and they're obviously not going to catch the Yankees or anything but if they're in the wild card race like those Toronto games could really matter a lot and if the Yankees and Astros are fighting for the number one seed those games could matter a lot and the Red Sox are falling apart but It's not like it's ever easy to go into fenway like that is one of the most ridiculous i think end of season stretches uh for any team but especially a team that's trying to get into the playoffs
1: are they where are you are they going to get into the playoffs i don't think so i think for the reason you mentioned i think they're probably playing a little bit of their skis right now but it's still fun to watch them i've been watching more orioles baseball in the last few weeks than i have in the last few years i mean i think last night's game when you go back at the end of the season, if they end up like just falling out of the race, it's gonna be one that they circle as like, oh, they fall fallen behind 3 nothing in Fenway, they tie the game, and then they bring in a there's like two outs, I think it was the sixth or seventh inning, man on second base, or man on first base, they bring in a lefty to face Hosmer, and Hosmer hits one off the center field wall. Like, I forgot the lefty's name, its name escapes me. Um, but that was one of those moments where it was like, oh, that's that's a tough one to swallow. All
2: right, we're gonna take a break, but we'll be back We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petrillo and Matt Myers, and we always like to introduce a pair of guys that we should be talking about a little bit more. My guy is not someone who is new to this show. I've probably been talking about him on and off for like five years, but I'm not sure I've ever devoted an actual segment to him, and he's having a really good year. So it seems like it's time to get back into, drum roll, Yandy Diaz. All right, now you've probably been hearing me talk about Yandy Diaz since like 2017, He's having a really good year for Tampa Bay. He's a 132 OPS with a very weird slash line, 276, an on-base of 390, and a slugging of 384. Uh, Usually when (laughs) you see a guy with a higher on-base than slugging, it means he's like a light-hitting middle infielder who can draw a walk. But if you've ever seen a picture of Yandy Diaz, you know that's not true. (laughs) The man has biceps that are bigger than my entire body. He is an incredibly muscly man. And that was sort of what drew my attention to him in the first place, because he was one of the earliest like stat cast standout guys where you're like oh my god this guy hits the ball really hard when he came up with Cleveland in 2017 he had a 51% hard hit rate that was top five uh, but he hit way too many grounders so we'll get back to his path in a second but what he's doing now is he's got the second most plate appearance on the Rays uh, behind Randy Rosarena and he's got the best OPS plus of anyone on the Rays with 300 plate appearances he's actually got a 120 OPS plus in parts of four seasons for the Rays and and he's doing it in a really interesting way. Despite the fact that he's this big, powerful man, uh, he's not crushing homers so much as he's showing a really elite command of the strike zone. He's got 60 walks, 43 strikeouts. He is one of only eight qualified players with more walks than strikeouts. And the names are really interesting. Juan Soto, Alejandro Kirk, Luis Ariz, DJ LeMahieu, Stephen Kwan, Alex Bregman, and Jose Ramirez. Those are all very different kinds of players, but they're all pretty good hitters. Yandi Diaz is on that list, I want to I tell you a little bit about his story and how he got here. He was born in Cuba in 1991. He tried to defect four times, and he got caught four times. And every single time he was caught, three weeks in jail. So this is clearly not an easy path for him. The fifth time, he made it via a 12-hour raft ride to the Dominican, surrounded by sharks, got there, Established residency in Haiti, signed with Cleveland. As of this May, and this is kind of sad, he has not seen his mother in person since 2013, although they still communicate you know, almost daily via FaceTime. It just It's a reminder that everyone's path to the majors is not exactly uh, a simple one, and in his case, it was a life-threatening one. So he signs with Cleveland. Comes up in 2017, as we said, shocked everybody with the hard-hit skills. The next year, had a 116 OPS+, plus, still hit the ball hard, had one homer. We were like, how is this possible? Well, because he hit the ball on the ground too much. Tampa Bay traded for him that winter. This is a, a three-way deal that you might remember where Cleveland got Carlos Santana, Seattle got Edwin Encarnacion, and Cleveland got Jake Bowers, who has kind of flamed out and is not even in the majors anymore. Tampa Bay also sent $5 million in the deal. This is how much they valued Yandy Diaz. And he's done nothing but hit. He's played first base. He's played third base. Uh, In the 2019 American League wildcard game, he hit leadoff, which I remember because I was there for the StatCast show and everybody's like, this man does not look like a leadoff hitter. For the entire history of baseball, leadoff hitters looked like, I don't know, Ozzy Smith. And this guy looks like Hulk Hogan. And he hit uh, at least one homer in that game, maybe two. The other reason that he came to my attention recently is Tampa Bay went to Milwaukee they stayed at the historic Fister Hotel, which is famously haunted. Diaz let slip that he was afraid of ghosts, so his teammates taped a cartoon ghost with the word cuidado, which is Spanish for watch out on his locker. <laughs> He's very bad teammates, or great teammates, depending on how you look at it. I, I've probably been talking about yanni diaz for years and he's never developed into like the power hitter you'd expect but he's a really good hitter uh with a really interesting story and it's cool to see him succeeding after all this time
1: i think there probably was a time where you devoted him as your guy like four years ago but it's okay I'll allow it. Um, <laughs> okay. We probably. It's, it's a shame, Mike. I got to say that we haven't kept like a running Google doc of all of our guys, because then we could go back and remember some guys. <laughs> remember remembering some guys. Remember our own guys. You get really, yeah. get, you know, you get really super self-referential because I'm sure there's some guys from like 2017 we did who are like out of baseball. <laughs> well, but, uh, I, yeah. feel, I, Yanni, I have a Google doc, I'll look. <laughs> Yandi Yandi has uh, been someone who's been in our conscious. He's been one of the, uh, you know, I, when I think of like the guys we've talked about over the years a lot, you know, Seth Lugo, Luis Perdomo, um, I'm trying to Franchi. think of early. Oh, Gar- Franchi Cordero, Garrett Richards. <laughs> Garrett Richards, <laughs> you know, okay. Your usual your usual household names. <laughs> Yandy Diaz on the list. I'm glad he's, it's, it's an interesting profile. He's basically not the player you expect based on, his physique, um, but he's a he's a productive major league player, and it's very, very cool to see. My guy for this week is none other than uh, St. Louis Cardinals outfielder Lars Newbar. And you'd be thinking, oh, you're just picking him because he's got a crazy name. Well, it's not a crazy name. It's just a cool name. And you're right. His cool name is part of it. But the reason I'm talking about him is because he's been one of the hottest hitters in baseball and a big reason why the Cardinals are back in playoff position after it looking like they might fade behind both the Brewers' And the Phillies over the last thirty days, Lars Nootbaar is hitting three thirty three, four twenty six, five seventy four. That one seventy five weighted create, weighted runs created plus is fifteenth in MLB among qualifiers during that time. The dude is absolutely raking, and with Harrison Bader now traded and, and Juan Yepes hurt, he's become the Cardinals' regular right fielder, and he's been quite good. Um, he originally came up last year; he was a league average hitter. This year, overall, he's got a one sixteen weighted run, weighted runs created plus. So he's been um, um, a, a, a very solid to above average major league hitter. All right, now over parts of two seasons, he does not have a big platoon split, so he's someone you could play every day, and also he's just like both a clubhouse favorite and a fan favorite. I mean, you know, and the name is obviously part of it, right? You have got the the that fan in in St. Louis who makes all the signs. I think he's got a a, a a Twitter account where he shows all like the signs he makes and he made one for like large newt bar that's like a Mr. Good bar and it says newt bar on it and it says like you know good for clutch hits. It's pretty cool. And then you read what his his teammates and his, his manager say about him. you're like, oh man, this guy sounds awesome. There was a story from Benjamin Hawkman, the St. Louis poach dispatch this week. quoted um quoted the Cardinals call, Cardinals manager Ali Marmol. He's great for the clubhouse. he really is. You would think he's in his sixth year in the big leagues. Somehow, he gets away with making fun of Nolan Arenado and anybody else in that clubhouse. Not many people can get on Nolan Arenado, but Newt Bar can. I'm not sure what the war is on Newtbar's goofiness, but from my seat, I appreciate the way he goes about it. It just adds a level of levity to the grind. So, another. So then, of course, I started doing some research on Lars Newtbar, and man, I learned a lot of interesting stuff about him. He was an eighth-round pick in 2018 out of USC. And I found out his brother, Nigel, also played at USC and was drafted by the Orioles in 2014. It made it to A-ball. I mean, what do you think is a cooler name? Lars Newtbar or Nigel Newtbar?
2: Nigel Newtbar. It's not even a question.
1: <laughs> right? I mean, baseball Twitter loves Lars Newtbar. Imagine if Nigel Newtbar was also in the major leagues. So anyway, from the Hawkman piece, he wrote, full name, Lars Taylor Tatsuji Newtbar has a fascinating background. His father is of Dutch descent and his mother is Japanese. He was raised in Southern California and played college at U, played college baseball at USC. At USC, the Herbert V. Newt Bar baseball office and hall of fame complex is named after Lars's grandfather, a philanthropist. So when I hear the word philanthropist, I do, I'm like, you know, philanthropist is like a nice way of saying like wealthy guy. So I was like, okay, now I kinda wanna know like, where does this all come from? So I did some digging and you know, he's got a Wikipedia page and there's some background info. So, Lars Nupar's grandfather worked for a grade and seam company called Taylor Milling Company. He married one of Taylor's daughters, and the company sold to Purina like seven years ago. And, well, you know, he did quite well on that sale, you know, Purina being a multinational corporation and all that. And, you know, he became very wealthy, but he's also, he was extremely, as he said, a real philanthropist. He's also a recipient of what is called the Ellis Island Medal of Honor. The medal recognizes, in the organization's words, individuals who have made it their mission to share with those less fortunate their wealth of knowledge, indomitable courage, boundless compassion, unique talents, and selfless generosity. They do so while acknowledging their debt to their ethnic heritage as they uphold the ideals and spirit of America. I got to say, Lars Newford's grandfather sounds like an interesting dude. He is also, according to Wikipedia, and I could not verify this independently, one of the early investors in the Dutch professional baseball league, which I cannot pronounce. It's like honkball hoofblast. I can't even pronounce it. I don't want to do it.
2: There it is. But you just you just wanted to say honkball.
1: I knew I, I just knew want, this was coming. <laughs> I just wanted to say honkball. So I could not independently verify this, but there's a you know, like as my mother likes to say, everybody's got a story, and Lars Newbar's got a story. I I kind of, I'm, you know, the whole family thing, it's it's interesting. And so fan favorite, clubhouse favorite. Uh, unique backstory. I like this guy.
2: Yeah, I, I was Googling while you were talking and Lars Newbar is like mildly interesting, but Herbert Newbar, the grandfather, sounds incredible. He lived until 108 years old, which is what this says. And uh he he would throw himself a themed birthday party every year with 150 guests. And apparently he was a world traveler. He visited 126 countries. And among his Philip 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 well, let's philip, just say yeah Don't drop yeah it. let's there we go there's the word i was looking for thanks um as a, the new Bar institute helped to fund the global justice program which works closely with judicial systems in rwanda uganda sudan south korea thailand vietnam indonesia etc cetera, etc cetera. and the quote uh, after he passed from the the leader of that program None of this would have been possible without the generosity of Herb Newbar. And I feel like we've gone wild way away from a baseball podcast at this point, but you've really opened the door to all sorts of interesting things. So I, I applaud you for your Lars Newbar selection. And maybe in the future, we just need to pick players with interesting grandfathers or grandmothers <laughs> and see what they've done. So uh, a golf clap for you on the Lars Newbar. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.